can't imagine that she would have found you and two of your mates overly intimidating if you were heading towards her three abreast. Not with all their, their, their instruments. Well, yes. maybe that was intimidating. No, back, back then I didn't mix with the, the folks who played instruments at school because everybody bullied me for doing it at school, so I had to pretend I didn't do it. Because he was it, really and I mixed with, shop quartet. Yeah, <laughs> don't mixed with the other abreast. boys. I love that. Do you, don't, don't you find it tragic, though, that schools now don't have touch shops? But well, well we, had to, we had to leave the, the school premises and walk down to a local tuck shop. But that's not, that's, that's just that a shop. Is that just a shop? That's that's just, yeah, that's, that's, that's basically the local uh, shop. Yeah. Still called it you a went to yeah. a, You went to a niece. I, we, I had a tuck shop. We, we had a tuck shop we at William Hughes Grammar School for the advancement of young gentlemen, yeah. What was, your, um, what was your uh, suite of choice? If you could just pick like 50p's worth of something. Refresher bar. Refresher, oh, Strawberry. just a bar. Strawberry refresher have, bar. What about, you know, your penny sweets? Do you know what? I don't know if in, in the touch shop at school they had penny sweets. I think it was it was just wall-to-wall refresher bars. <laughs> is that how you imagine it? The is this a scene from Willy Wonka you're describing? I like a fried egg. Fried egg. But they're not... They're not That's I think they're by, they're, Yeah, they're by the 100 grams. So talk, talk to me about what a penny sweet is. What like rhubarb and custards. The, the, little, the little penny chews you used to get. Okay. Blackjacks and stuff like the that. Little penny chews? Yes. When you were shopping in the 1830? <laughs> no. Did you ever go to the local shop? Did you not the touch shop? The local shop. A blackjack... And a fruit salad. Fruit together. salads, yes. Did you ever yeah, put them? Yeah. 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 Unwrap them individually. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Them I like your style. Yeah. And I would only yeah. use three Taste teeth whilst doing it. Yes. It's once the jazzy came along, I lost interest. The no jazzy? What? You must have had jazzies. Is that like a... Jazzies. You've not seen the, the, the mega jazzies. Is that a euphemism? <laughs> no, they're like... They're like... Uh, they're like, <laughs> like jazzy. That's what it's wandered. Eyes wandered in the newsagent towards the top shelf. No, 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 it wasn't that. They're like milk chocolate or white chocolate, and they have kind of hundreds and thousands on them. You must have seen them. They're the little tiny things. Or you can get mega jazzies who are huge. Is that what they're called? Are they called jazzies? I didn't know they were called jazzies. I didn't know they were called jazzies. Well, you know, you live and learn. I mean, Chinch must have been there at their inception. Are they they circa 1972? No, no, I was at the local garden centre and they've got mega jazzies there, both uh, both varieties. (laughs) Excellent. I'm still thinking about what we thought it was. This this is extending into an unwelcome metaphor. (laughs) We used to find jazzies in the woods. Oh, (laughs) please. I was always a fan of a four-fingered Kit Kat, though, in the tuck shop. Not a two, because two fingers a Kit Kat doesn't really do the job, does it? Four's too much, but I'd rather have four. Two, two fingers like a pre-dinner snack. Yes. Uh, welcome to Set Piece Many. This is the podcast where four friends talk football over food. We are here once again to distract you from something you don't want to do for another few minutes. I'm Hugh Ferris. Coming up, high-profile soccer chat with these fine folk identified by their current position in the exciting and, may we say, original, are you listening to the BBC Sport website, Premier League Predictions League Guessing Game Competition. Steve Wyeth, 188th. That good. That's 28 places behind the team called Steve Wyeth Appreciation Society. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Rory Smith is currently 246th. That's above the Rory Smith Fan Club team, but a long way behind Rory Smith Fan Club presidents. And Andy Hinchcliffe, who is 209th, just ahead of Chinch's Claxon. <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> Which makes a welcome return in the form of a team in our Premier League uh, Predictions League. Uh, the food is uh, courtesy of Steve. Hang on, where are you? Oh, all oh, oh, right. No, I didn't want to brag. You know, 77th. Is that right? Who's winning? Uh, somebody who is seven places above me. <laughs> That's all that really matters. <laughs> um, Steve has provided the food, which is uh, a Jamaican ginger cake, pan au raisin, and some cinnamon swells. And <laughs> of all of those things, only one slice of Jamaican ginger cake remains. And they were put on a plate, I think, about three minutes ago. That's yours. And if you don't get to it quickly, well, I'm going to have to do some talking. It. So I'm it's probably hungry, best I'm to I'm hungry today because I've been for a run. What? 
with the dog. I've also been for a run Have already you? today. Did you did you attach one of your children to a lead? <laughs> I, I walked them to school and nursery and then ran a long route home. So yeah, pretty That's much quite an achievement. Yeah. How do you? Because I used to go running with Lola. She used to run across my path. Yeah. Well, he did that initially, and then he worked out what was going on. Okay. So he he kind of he was actually quite for, for Hector. He was quite well behaved. Were you fartlecking or just doing a continuous run? Oh, what now? Oh yeah, fartlecking. Fartlecking. You told me to fartlek. Interval training. So ne- you should never run should a never constant run. pace. It no. does you no good at all. No. Is that right? Yeah, so you, you should fartlek. Jog, walk. Quicker, jog, walk. It's called fartlek training. It's a Scandinavian thing. That's what all the all the top players used to do. Top players. Still do, I think, these days. Yeah. Have you tried yeah. mentioning yeah. this to Mo Farah? Because he seems to mm. run at a pretty consistent yeah. pace. He just runs sprints. Keeps collecting medals for wherever he's going. A few years ago, we did the Amsterdam Half Marathon. And we went Is this after the Royal We? Or? This is, no, this is me and Kate. All oh, right, okay. And or you and Hector. <laughs> is this running or is this, this something else? Oh, it's running. running. Sorry, yeah. Just I dropped Kate after two kilometres because she was going too slowly. Uh, so she's I le- too heavy. After just two kilometres and a half marathon. Just left her in some industrial estate in Amsterdam. And, um, the is this how determined you were to get a personal best time? You were willing to sacrifice the relationship? I wanted to break two hours and she was just going really slowly and it was annoying two, me. You were going back um, two hours? Were you going backwards? Yeah, two hours sounds right for a half, half marathon. marathon. First so time. You're like, you're like the anti-Brownlee brothers, weren't you? Where they yeah. help each other along. You actually kicked her in the face and ran off. That type of thing. It's really hard to run at a pace that's too slow for your natural rhythm. That's why you should fartlek, you see. You could have walked for Stop a bit, sprinted great. to catch up, anyway. and then walked again and sprinted, and it would have done your heart a world of It would, after, yes. After yes. we'd finished, which in my case was, was around two hours, and in Kate's case was about double, um, The she's much smaller than me, it's fine, it's fine. But we went to watch the actual marathon runners. They are literally just sprinting the yes. entire time. <laughs> yes, they it's are. ridiculous. It's absolutely it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. It can't be good for you. Can't be good for you. What are they running? 13 miles an hour. 13. If you put that on a treadmill, it'll just fling you off. <laughs> it's incredibly fast. That is true. They, is they've true. tried doing that. BBC Sport website did a video on that. Where they tried to get pe- put did people. Did somebody else do that video put, a week before to, to much uh, greater acclaim? So bitter. <laughs> I think this one was an original idea. <laughs> they, they, they put people wearing a harness, mm. or like on a bungee style harness, on a treadmill and gradually sped it up to the pace that Mo Farah runs a 10k and the people were managing it for about five <laughs> seconds before the harness like swept them away because they couldn't keep going news flash mo farah runs fast there you go, there you go. Yeah. first, with, first of all the exclusives yeah uh, thank you everybody for all your emails and uh, your reactions to our particularly our last uh, pod on twitter um, you can get hold of them all at itunes via soundcloud and many other ways to at set piece menu is our twitter account set piece menu at gmail.com is how you can get us if you'd like to send us an email uh, you have also been excellent with your iTunes reviewing so thank you for that after I asked you a couple of times the response was spectacular do keep them coming we'll be heading up the charts like Kajagoogoo in circa 1984 Chinchu you're the only person why are you looking at me Utabi R there you go there we go you understand that reference and you added a second one which none of us understood even though we had seen the script before we started (laughs) Uh, so then everyone let us chat. Our topic today is prompted by, but is not at all limited to, uh, what happened at Arsenal's Europa League match against FC Köln, uh, hereafter referred to, uh, with apologies to our German listeners, as Cologne. Does segregation at football grounds work? 
It is not our place to pass judgment on the events leading up to the match outside the Emirates, but some of what happened inside could inform a larger discussion about segregation. I was working at the BBC that night and saw some of the texts coming in from Arsenal fans, genuinely concerned for either themselves or their families as Cologne fans who had bought tickets beyond their allocation of just under 3,000 got into areas of the stadium not intended for the away supporters, either uh, by buying them from touts or other potentially illicit means. There were scuffles as some of them tried to join those in the away end, but others, for obvious logistical reasons, couldn't get there, so simply stayed where they were among the Arsenal fans, some of whom, as I say, were worried about the potential threat of violence. From what I think we know now, none ensued inside the stadium, and the very suggestion that just being there created fear is something that the German fans have taken umbrage with. Would there have been any fear if segregation were not a part of football, and English football in particular? Was the fear of some Arsenal fans, while genuine, unfounded? One big flinch. Does segregation solve a problem or creates one? Does segregation at football grounds work? We're going to come on to a, a series of tweets um, from Tony Evans formerly of the Times, formerly your boss, Rory, in just a moment. But before we um, come to what his um, thoughts are, because they definitely inform the debate, what were your th th thoughts as you watched this unfolding? Did you think it was going to scale upwards into, into a, a, a footballing disaster? Or did you think that this was something that had been overblown because this happens in other countries and other sports to no great detriment to those countries and sports? The, yeah, there's kind of two elements to it. There's my, my reaction initially when you saw the footage of the Cologne fans marching through London was, this is brilliant. This, this is what a fan should do. And, you know, it's the Europa League. It's, it's good for, for that to happen in the Europa League. It kind of shows that it does matter to certain clubs. Uh, my reaction when I heard, so I wasn't there, but when I heard that, you know, that things were kind of, there were problems of some sort or that it wasn't in initially clear what outside the Emirates was, A, that's bad. But B, the police probably should have understood that there were 20,000 Germans marching through London. Especially because they had seen it on social media. Yeah. Like I say, we're not going to necessarily no. uh, uh, apportion blame no, for no, that, no, absolutely but not. you're right in providing the context. But what's, what was really interesting to me was that was the debate that that whole evening, and I think people have probably heard enough about kind of the rights and wrongs of, of you know, who did what wrong and who could have done what better. And I, I don't really like that sort of blame-pointing culture, as I think Rafi Honigstein pointed out on, an, on another podcast uh, the police, was that, was that the day before or the day after the tube bomb at Parsons Green? Uh, Friday, so the day after was the tube, the yeah. attempted tube bombing. Yeah. Uh, so the police got other things to worry about, probably shouldn't criticise the police for not having quite enough people at a football match. It's actually a bit of a shame that you need so many police at football matches anyway. But I think the issue of segregation is a really interesting one and it's worth talking about even if you have quite strong views on the subject because it's one of those things and people who've been listening for a long time will know that these things tend to interest me, that we all accept but very rarely analyse. And I think that those things tend to be worth looking at. So we know that when you go to a football match, there are, there are, there's a home end and there's an away end and everyone thinks that's great. And we know, I know from personal experience, that if you get away fans in the, in the home sections, some home fans get very upset. And I tweeted a story that I remember from Villa a few years ago where uh, they were playing Arsenal, lost 3-0. I think on the second goal, there was a family right in front of the press box. One of the par Two parents, two kids. One of the parents was wearing an Arsenal shirt. One was wearing a Villa shirt. The two kids were both in Arsenal shirts because they clearly had made the right choice. Uh, and <laughs> they, they were prescient in their decision-making. And, you know, I feel comfortable enough with Aston Villa fans to, to think that if there's any listening, 
they'll agree with me. They will accept that that is a clearly a logical thing to do. If you have a straight choice between Villa and Arsenal, you choose Arsenal because Villa are terrible. It might just have been an alphabetical thing. Could to be. be honest. Let's start the anyway, top and see where I go. So after the first goal, nothing. They, did, they all studi- after Arsenal scored the first, they all studiously sat down. After the second, the, the, the two kids went up. They were happy that Arsenal had scored. And lots of adults sitting around them got them thrown out. Imagine, I mean, I just imagine being an adult who can't stand seeing a kid celebrate a goal because they support a different team. And I think what the Cologne incident did was maybe bring into relief whether this, this segregation is necessary. I think it does work. It clearly works. It, I think the last question that you asked is the most interesting one, though. Does it create a problem as well as solving one? Is it exacerbating the tribalism? Does it create a front line that increases tension? And the other, the other question that I'd ask is, why do we need to be segregated? Football fans don't ask themselves that enough. Why, why, when I say, oh, you've got to have segregation at the North London Derby, because otherwise there might be violence. Why? Why would there be violence? Why, why would seeing a, a group of people who don't support the same team as you make you violent? I don't understand it. And the, the problem is when you ask those questions, people say, oh, you, you, don't, get, you don't understand football, you're too middle class. I've been watching football since, since, I, was, since I can remember. I might have a middle class accent, but that does not mean... That shouldn't be taken as a sort of you don't understand the working man's game. That line of argument, I think, is, is A, deeply classist in that what working, working class people all want to fight all the time. That's not how, how that worked. And B, it totally it's disrespectful uh, to you, it doesn't matter how rich or poor or middle class or working class you are, you, you can still devote your life to something that you're passionate about. But, and I think it is, this has been taken ages to say, I think it's a subject worth investigating why we feel. Whether we should feel that there should be segregation, whether it's the case that does it doesn't happen in every sport, and why why the default is hostility, you say yeah. the lines the lines are drawn. Historically, have we always had segregation, or was there a time in the English game where people could just I stand where they want, support who they want, where they want? Tony or? Evans answers this question in his thread. I think. Yeah, it, so was, was it, it must have been brought in for a reason. That's what it was. Was, yeah. was, it, was it to do with violence? Was it to yes. do with the yeah. history lesson okay. in a second after Steve? Yeah, I I, I agree with. Rory, to the point of, isn't it a shame that we have this and, and why do we not ask the question, why? But do we not also have to accept that some of the, the points you've just made are, are a society problem, not a football problem? And that the, the, the ship has sailed too long ago on the idea of having fans mingling for football matches because you'd still have a situation where there'd be some high-risk games where you would need to segregate. You'd have to accept that the, the tribalism in football has developed massively over the last, what, three or four decades, long gone are the days where you'd go and watch United one week, City the other week. You might have a stronger support for one team or the other, but you would be perfectly happy and perfectly welcome going to each of those grounds on alternate weeks. That kind of thing simply doesn't happen anymore. You couldn't afford to do it. Probably the practicalities of of fixtures being spread all over the place wouldn't, wouldn't make it possible. And that having a situation where some games were segregated and some weren't would just be a headache beyond the club's capability. The other thing, of course, is that, you know, many teams have a incredibly vast number of season ticket holders within their stadiums on a week by week basis. So 
you know, a large percentage of their seats are already allocated to people who go every week or at least have a ticket to go every week and they may share it around. So those seats that would be available for, a, you know, for mingling of the two sets of fans would be fairly restricted anyway. So doesn't it make sense to have a corner of the ground where the away fans sit and that is a, a part of the ground that you can increase or decrease in size depending on the, the numbers of travelling fans? And one point I read from an article talking about segregation online, which I thought was really interesting, was that this fan was saying that the reason I like segregation is that I'm sat around the same people week by week and I build up a rapport with those supporters. I might not even know their name, but I talk about the game with them every week. It's like and a community, they, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, they yeah. become part of my community. Yeah. Whereas if those, if those faces were changing every week, different fans from different clubs... I wouldn't get the same joy from going to the match. Th- those are all completely valid. And yes, I think and, we, and, and, we and should a slightly um, a conclusion drawing yeah. reality. <laughs> Absolutely Steve, right. Sorry. Well, I've saved us all an awful lot of time. I can <laughs> go and put the lunch on. More Jamaica ginger cake. <laughs> but no, I think we, yeah, we probably should accept that, that this is a theoretical discussion. The, the main, yes. the, the main point. All of these points. I'm not saying excellent. I can't be persuaded. No. By the way, no, no, but there is there is a, there is clearly a practical thing, which is that fan, tickets are in such demand that there is no incentive to the clubs to say we're going to hold back an extra five thousand so that the away fans, if they want to come, can come along yeah. as well. I think it maybe applies more in the sense of you always get home fans, sorry, away fans in home ends. It happens all the time. I used to go to quite a lot of grounds in the home end to watch my team. It's how these tickets end up in the wrong hands. Then that's your problem as well, isn't it? Well, I think touting is an issue, but you can't ever get rid of the the, the touts. And and certainly the instances that I've been in the home end when my team has gone to somewhere where I've not been able to go as an away fan, uh, I've got it from a fan of the home team who has lent me their season ticket. So a much more legitimate, if you like, in air quotes way of getting a ticket, but not necessarily resulting in anything different. And I think providing you can show respect yeah. to the home team then that's perfectly ah. fine if the, yeah, if, I sat on my hands the whole time I was going to say how do you behave but that, but that, how do you behave in that situation what counts is this, this came up on Twitter as well what counts as showing respect so I when I tweeted that story about Villa several people kind of came back to me and said well, you, as long as you respect the home team as long as you know I don't want I, I haven't paid money for my ticket to see someone celebrating the opposition scoring a goal which is, I think is kind of absolving yourself of personal responsibilities. I, if I see somebody celebrate something that I don't, don't like happening, then I can't, I can't be relied upon not to turn violent. And you sort of think, well, but passions run deep, don't they? And I think this is something that we, that, that is, we should both admire about football fans as well as occasionally despair of, is that the way you support your football team, that passion runs so deeply mm. and it, you're, so much of your week revolves around it that it's hard enough if you're a, a home fan and that little corner of the ground goes up in celebration when they score that is one of the most heart-sinking moments you can feel as a football fan because it's almost as though you see the ball heading towards the goal and you don't want it to be mm. and, 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 and that's the, the confirmation, that's the confirmation yeah, yeah. seeing that corner of the ground go up in jubilation so I almost understand that you know the, the, you don't want to then have somebody sat two rows in front of you giving it the whole arm spread wide stood out celebrating joyously you just want to be able to go into your shell and pretend at but least for a brief moment. In your case there, line. you had t- two kids. Yeah. How old were these kids? So, uh, young teenagers. I can't tell. Everyone looks the same age. And how, when they, <laughs> in terms of celebrating the goal, were they... Were just they just jumped up like kids. They weren't, they weren't kind of... They didn't turn... And, <laughs> turn that's to what I'm saying. Again, arms how, spread wide yes. up. Come on. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. That type of thing. I understand why home fans would get... That to me is too much. But then again... Should you be sitting? Should the away fan be thinking, well, should I really be sitting here? Because naturally I'm going to respond in the way when a goal goes in. Should I be sitting here? But the circumstance of how they get there can be kind of completely innocent. 
Yeah, well, they, no, they I, react to a I goal in the, the way circumstances that kids of how do. they get their arms aren't yeah, relevant. Yeah. If you buy a ticket off a tower or if you yeah, get yeah. lent one by a mate, it's fine. Yeah. The, the counter argument, Matthew Side wrote about this in the Times, saying that, that football's tribalism gives it its glory, and that's fine, although the segregation is not necessarily, for, necessarily the cause of the tribalism. I would say the tribalism is there, and segregation is a consequence of it rather than the other way around. Rugby league doesn't have segregation, except in very, very specific fixtures. The whole derby, I think, is always segregated because there has been violence there. Rugby league has a far more working-class demographic than football now. Uh, is is a rough sport played in rough places, basically, and I say that as someone who comes roughly from rugby league country, sort of, the, the nice bit next to rugby league country. <laughs> the, the bit, the, basically, the bit that the road drives so, through on its way Essentially, to. if there's segregation in rugby league country, you're on one side yeah. of the fence <laughs> <and> rugby <laughs> league country. He's very much segregated from rugby league country. But the... <laughs> No, but you know you, he's in the spa next to the sewage farm. That's basically what he's saying. Rugby lead is 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 my. I regard rugby lead as proper rugby. But yeah, that's the easiest way. Of, of what? Wait a minute! Oh, whoa, 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 no, whoa! We'll come back to that, Tint. But How the, very dare you? The he's from a grammar school background, so he's there's definitely nothing rugby to do with it. Nothing he's rugby to do with it. Oh, Don't yes. make this about class, Hugh. You went to a tuck shop. There <laughs> wasn't even a tuck shop. It was just a, a local shop. shop. You assumed because all my shops. school couldn't have a tuck shop. I've you already downgraded all myself. All shops were tuck shops. You know when it's petrol station, it's a yeah. tuck shop. Anyway, <laughs> if it gave me penny sweets, it was a tuck shop. You're a Chinese cool. takeaway tuck shop. It's the, amazing. The local cinema is a tuck shop because it gives me penny sweets. <laughs> the I've completely lost my thread now. The, that is our I, fault. I don't think that... You were pretending that rugby league is a superior sport to rugby No, I'm, I'm, I'm just... I'm <laughs> That's just, right, Stephen, he was. I think that, that the fact that... Yeah, oh, what I was going to say was, segregation is a product of tribalism. Tribalism is not a product of, of, of segregation. The proof of that is partly in rugby league, but the better example is the World Cup or the Euros, where fans of all nations even you know, ones that want to leave the European Union, sit together <laughs> and broadly don't have that many problems. The, the problem tends to be outside the assuming ground, Assuming neither inside. England nor Russia are playing. And there's, <laughs> there's, an interesting, there's actually an interesting thing about tribalism, the claiming of land with England fans, that, is, uh, that I think is quite important and has an echo in what happen, happened in London with Cologne, but that's a different subject. Fans of different countries sit next to each other at World Cup games and the atmosphere does not suffer. What's, uh, the atmosphere suffers because the tickets cost a fortune and they're in white elephant stadiums in countries that can't afford the, can't afford the tournament. And they're always miles out of town and stuff like that. But the atmosphere inside the ground does not suffer because the fans are sitting together. You do not need segregation for atmosphere. But is, is that not often a, a, a case that the... Sorry, Hugh. You it's will right. be allowed to speak in no, your podcast uh, very, very, don't very worry. shortly. Not, not, his it, not my podcast, but the, 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 the apology is to Tony Evans, who I've been trailing yeah. his thoughts well, to, for, a, for a good amount of time. Tony has waited for 10 minutes. He can wait another couple. Does <laughs> um, <laughs> anybody get the impression that he's had trouble with the kids this morning? <laughs> I'm actually, they've been as good, good as gold. Oh, so we're getting it instead. Yeah. Um, is that the, 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 the hardcore supporters of those those national teams, and the way you support your national mm. team is different to the way you support your club side, have got their tickets through the, the official yeah. channels and that the bits where you're mingling. And I have been to many Euro and World Cup and sat in these sorts of areas. Generally, that's the brag. To, to, no, well, no, no, because... You know, because I wasn't working because no one wanted to employ don't me. Wind, so don't wind him up. Um, don't wind him up. Is that those those fans are generally a little bit more dispassionate, and yeah, they might true. not even support yeah. one of the two nations. I, I think I've only ever seen England play once. You know, I've gone to all sorts of different random. The, the England Russia game at um, at the last Euros was the only time that I've actually seen an England game at a major tournament. Coincidence there was loads of violence? Well, probably yeah. not. Do you feel... <laughs> he was angry that day as well. <laughs> do, you, do you feel our clubs promote tribalism? I don't know if it's the clubs. I think... Well, in fact, I, yeah, yes, I do. Because if you support us, you hate them. And what I would so say, this is where we draw the line in the what, sand. Yeah, what I would say, from what Steve said earlier, is that 
I do wonder whether part of this... It has all gone too far, and you couldn't do it now, except in very, very occasional fixtures. I think Fulham used to try and have a mitt stand, and it, they, they've eventually shut it down because it was, all, it was, either, it was basically all away fans. Because that was, that was who it's like a cup final, isn't it? If you were to say, you've got two teams at a yeah. cup final, just you can sit, sit wherever. wherever you want. But the, Would they ever think of doing that? No. no. And I think the, the problem is that, not just the clubs, but the media as well, and it, I, th- I think it's, got, it's either got worse or it's, it's been given more oxygen in the last sort of 10, 15 years, encourage it. And I, I, don't, I actually don't think that's healthy. I, I don't think this kind of anger and sort of absolutist fury at any criticism or kind of anybody saying anything else, you know, whether it's, whether it's like banter Twitter accounts saying, ha, 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 isn't it funny that Man United fans are upset because they lost? And you think, well, of course they're upset that they lost. There's so much, people spend a lot of time criticising other fans for behaving exactly like they do when they lose. It's very annoying. But I, I do wonder whether we as a, as a football industry maybe encourage it. But I would also say, and I count myself in this number as well, that maybe fans don't think about it enough. I think there's, there's too much acceptance and virtue promotion of how much passion you have for your team. And yeah. it's not always... It, it, it can be huge. You see the great... The, the passion of the Cologne fans was fantastic to see whilst they were singing the songs going through London. I love, I love that stuff. But the, when that passion then becomes a kind of an inability to watch or the, to understand that you might lose the game of football or not to call into 606 and demand that someone be hung because you've drawn at home to West Brom or... I just... I think that we do maybe encourage it and we... There comes a point where you, you, I don't know, you have to be, I don't know, you, you just kind of have to think maybe this isn't actually healthy. This tribalism is, is, isn't a virtue. It's not something we, we should necessarily be saying is brilliant, is the best thing about football. The tribalism is really important, but I'm not sure that it needs to be demonstrated in the way that it mm. currently is, maybe. Yeah, you, the virtue promotion is a good way of saying it. Look, just look at people's Twitter, Twitter handles. They're all absolutely gagging to put their club's name or, or a know, reference to a no player. You've no idea how much time I get accused of being biased from someone with, someone with, the, with the letters MCFC in their name. It's most extraordinary. Why, why do people define themselves like that? I can oh, understand listen, why listen, you define yourself like that on a Saturday afternoon. That, <laughs> but that, that, that is, that is, is that a societal problem that, where I've got to be more passionate than you? Yeah. Yes. Half a percent that's, more. That's I'm more exactly. passionate. And I, everything I do, every breath I take... Is, is about my club. <laughs> that sounds like a good. We should write that down. What Steve says is really important. Yes, but I think it's a whole nother pod. Yeah, but it, we should we should at least acknowledge it here and maybe establish whether people want to hear us talk about it. People identifying themselves by their club, I it, I think is probably a relatively new phenomenon. If I'm completely honest, within the, certainly within the last thirty thirty ish years, if not more recent, and it isn't that is an interesting psychological trope. No question about that. That if I know who I support, and it is kind of. It's probably part of my identity, but it's, it, I'd be, I'd, I would never describe it as the, the defining part of my identity. And that... Well, part of that is your professional integrity and your desire to not make it a defining possi- point. Possi- possibly, but even, even before I was a professional, and I'm not a very professional professional, but even before that, I don't think it was, it was a key part of who I was. I don't think it influenced my worldview particularly. And it's interesting that it is now not only that people do it but as Chinch says there is this sort of competitive element to it mm. to say that you can be more more passionate more devoted 
it's cult it's cultish. So then if you put all those people together yeah. in a stadium, this is us, that's them. Yeah. And this is the again, it's just I found it interesting. It was put in place to solve a problem in terms of maybe violence. Is, is this when oh, are we getting over to Tony? Brilliant. Are we bringing Tony in now? This is it, if he meant to or not, I have no idea. Of course but I meant to do. That brings us round after yes. a, some sort of fifteen minute hiatus to where we were trying to yes. start the conversation. That's why I've done what I've just done. Chinge, you are a uh, more of a professional professional Thank you. than Rory Smith. But he's the professional's professional. This from Tony Evans, and we'll get through it quickly now because it's been so vaunted that nothing Tony Evans can take and match everything that we've built up to. Uh, he says, there is a coherent argument that segregation made hooliganism worse. It made us and them more delineated, which is almost exactly what Andrew George Hinchcliffe Thanks, just man. said. Uh, he goes on to say, and people could shout, say things and act without fear of being pulled up. You think, say, Munich songs would have happened in mixed areas or in the modern era, uh, Hillsborough stuff. Segregation was introduced, he says, and here's your history lesson, after two West Ham against Manchester United games in May and September of 1967, he posits. It was a knee-jerk reaction to two admittedly violent games. United swamped Upton Park when they won the league. The East End hit back in September of uh, that year. But the fences emboldened plenty and attempts to keep fans apart created battle lines. And then he goes on and he says a lot more than this, but just to conclude this little section of it, the policy of segregation failed. If anything, it made things worse. He does admit that that's unlikely to change, as Steve started off our conversation by saying. There are games like Celtic Rangers, for example, or I would suggest any matches in Belgrade or Istanbul if you're going wider than just these shores, um, at which desegregating fans would obviously not be a good idea. As a mm. player, did you, if you were an away team, did you want all your fans to be in one area so that you could either celebrate one of your many, many, many goals uh, <laughs> with them or alternatively you could hear them because they would be louder because they were en masse? Well, as players, of course, it was very much you against the opposition. Mm. So you were... Not battling physically, well, you were battling physically, but not throwing punches. But you were trying to, it, there had to be that difference between you. You had to want to beat an opposition. If you felt, well, we're all footballers together, let's just have a nice game of football. It doesn't matter how it ends up. Of course, it matters how it ends up. So, players, yes, I think away from home, certainly, if you have vociferous fans in one area of a ground, and after the first 20 minutes, if the game is nice and flat and your fans can be heard, you all pull together and that then aggravates home fans as well, doesn't it? But as players, yes, absolutely it is a battle. That, that's what we're on the pitch to, to win the game. That's what we're there for. So it's, it's not as if we're there necessarily to enjoy yourself. So maybe the away fans in many ways travel for different reasons as well. Is this yeah. kind of, there's a kind of a kudos for being an away fan who yes. travels to all these and places. It, it is, it is I'm, that I'm shared more experience. passionate than, yes, than exactly. a home supporter. The, the, the shared experience as well, people tend to go, quite a lot of people tend to go to away games more than home games yes. because they are more, um, I would say, um, they're autonomous, they're a smaller group, they're able to create an atmosphere that's more to their liking, whether it's a good or bad one, people yeah. will judge. Um, and, and clearly going to an away game is sometimes more of a tribal, yes, but also rewarding experience. Yeah. for an away fan uh, for a fan of a club to go away but also if you're a player say you're playing at Old Trafford and there's 75,000 people you've got three or 4,000 of you and you're winning and you can hear your fans above 72,000 there's something fantastic about that as a, as a player just looking at it from a player's point of view and I can understand why fans get so when things are going well at a big stadium like that you can understand but that's when then the problems kick in isn't it the home fans clearly don't like the way teams behaving like that even though they've got every right to because the, the game is going in their favour so why, why shouldn't they kind of cheer and jump up and down because we, it becomes a turf thing yes exactly yeah, we, we spoke before thing. about yeah. the fact that they spend more time often 
goading the home fans or the alternative fans, whether they're home or away, than they actually do watching the game. So there's clearly part of can, part of the experience yeah. is to actually go there with the intention yes. of riling up yes. the yeah, opposition's yeah. fans. Yeah. I'd not thought about this before, but Chinch has just, as he often does, opened my eyes to a whole new world. Uh, like a mole. The moles ever open their eyes? Interesting that they can't see if they no, do. No, they're blind, aren't they? It's interesting they're that blind. in football, more than in any other sport, <laughs> there is a a pronounced home advantage, which occasionally managers will. I think Wenger. It's one of Wenger's "We live in a world" quotes, where he says, "We live in a world where his, his movie voiceovers in well, a yeah, world." Yeah, he kind of Wenger has this thing. We live in a world. It's like a oh. sexy Sean Dyche, though, isn't it? Is he going? Down no, it's different to Dyche. Yeah, French, yeah, yeah, French, yeah. Really. Dyche's different. Yeah, a little bit of French. Although yeah. Arsene Wenger, the irony with doing impressions. I think your finger Arsene. might be better than your Dyche, actually. <laughs> Do it again. Do it again. We live in a world. It's good. The it's good. That was a very Gallic <laughs> as well in the middle of that. But the thing about Wenger, when you're doing your impression of Arsene Wenger, you've got to remember that Arsene Wenger has a German accent, not a French one. Remember, remember, remember Arsene remember. Wenger. Yeah. <laughs> very good. But football has a much more pronounced home advantage than other sports, So, which is interesting because obviously in all sports, one team is the away team. Uh, unless it's the magic, magic weekend in rugby league, the proper version of rugby. The... <laughs> We feel like you're an away fan riling up the home so fans. Is it, is, it is a magical weekend. Yeah, it's as a well. good job we're segregated <laughs> across this table. <laughs> That's only in big trouble. <laughs> Newcastle St James's Park becomes the focal point of the footballing and sporting <laughs> universe. I, I, I see Rory's eyes rising up into his head. It would be really interesting to study whether that has become more pronounced since segregation was introduced. That would be fascinating because I think football is, is, is more segregated than, than any other sport in terms of the fans. So is that a function? The fact that there's this defined home advantage, is that a function of segregation? Ergo, that's right, ergo. Ergo, he's used Latin. Is it, is it actually in the team's interest to retain segregation on a performance basis? If we're talking about other sports, you have other fans from the away team being able to buy tickets on general sale. Say, for example, you've got a, a large stadium in America, you've got 90,000. Um, you've probably got about 60,000 people who go regularly. You won't get 30,000 away fans because the distances mm. dictate you can't do that. But you may well have a number of fans from the local area who support the team who are the visitors. But they will be able to buy general release tickets anywhere in the stadium so they're dotted around, it's not segregated. That will sometimes decrease the sense of atmosphere but it will also sometimes increase the sense of atmosphere because you've got both um, teams being mm. cheered for college sports in america sometimes have an away following that are in a segregated area um quite a lot of the time because they actually have a following if you're going to organize fans in one group then clearly the visiting team will help to do that and then they will get a block of tickets but in professional sports you will see there is a mosaic of, of different or two jerseys and there doesn't seem to be any issues. Um, you can often, it's quite nice, see a snapshot of two different fans celebrating or commiserating depending on what has happened, whether it's a touchdown or whether it's a, a goal in ice hockey or whether it's a home run in, in Major League Baseball. You, you have these moments and you, yes, okay, it's very easy for us to look at the aesthetic and go, oh, well, that's so beautiful and that's so lovely, but they do not have the same tradition. It does not exist. What football fans would say to that is that you do not get in American sports, as far as I, certainly my experiences in American sports, uh, going to watch games, you don't get the same call and call and response, the same kind of noise, the same fervour that you get in football. 
and it would be a shame to lose that. Yes, there is no constant soundtrack. No. Because particularly in NFL games, when your offense is on the field, you shut up because they need to be able to hear instructions. Mm. When the opposing offense is on the field, you're shouting blue murder because you don't want them to hear the instruction mm. delivered. And there is no question that football's atmosphere is one of its, m- its most magical things. It's one of the things that needs to be protected. I guess the question that it comes down to is, can you have that atmosphere if in certain areas at certain games, there is not a clear dividing line between the fans of one team and the fans of the other. As we say, all of this is theoretical because segregation is not going to go away. Although it's interesting that in other countries it doesn't exist in quite the same hardline way as it does here. Hugh talking about distances in America just made me think, is this a sort of an issue that's specific perhaps to to England? Because they can reach the 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 geography and to places like Germany where attending football is relatively inexpensive, uh, the cost of your ticket can um, often is offset against the cost of travel so that's why you see away fans traveling long distances in Germany because it's a, it's a relatively inexpensive thing to do whereas for example in Italy very few away fans travel to games you know very often you know Juventus is a good example because they've got a more modern stadium now so it's even more obvious to see is that there is a very very small slither at the Allianz Arena Turin for away fans and it's very often only a third or half full even for what is such a substantially you know substantial game in in any team's calendar rest of the stadium is packed out but there'll be a few empty seats in the corner that haven't been filled up by the away allocation but it's not just atmosphere it's also the threat of violence which is where we started this conversation would the threat of violence be reduced because there is no inherent fear built in because segregation has made an us and them so if there's no us and them and an Arsenal fan had a Cologne fan next to them even if they had a young child who they were trying to protect and maybe it might have been their first game ever at the the Emirates Stadium there would be would or question would there be less sense of inherent fear because there is no tradition of fear well I'm just going to look at obviously we have the problems with the Arsenal Cologne game but Put it in context. How bad is the pro- segregation that we have? How how many problems do we have because of this these days? No, we, we, we don't have flashpoints. Yeah, it's not I, as I if something think. is happening I game think, after game the, after game. The but question, it's about is the is the status quo with, as it is because yes. of it, yes. rather than yeah, yeah, there have yeah. been but examples also, also, of where it doesn't work. The, we we know that this is how it is, and we know why this is how it yeah. is, and where where it comes from. And as Steve has said, rather ruining all the discussion, uh, <laughs> we know that it's not going away. Does it? It's too far gone, basically, for various logistical reasons. But I, th- I think the question is, all, the only thing I, th- I don't really have a view beyond, I think it's worth analysing whether, whether there might be a better way, whether we are justified in thinking that this is the right way, and how much it influences our behaviour. And what Hugh just said is a really good example of that. So the reason, it's not for me to speak on why Arsenal fans were afraid. We have been taught in this country that seeing away fans in the home ends means violence, which is... A, tr- a form of cultural and social conditioning that if you see a group of Man United fans in the home end at Anfield so that's provocation you think oh my god they're here to cause trouble yes yes it doesn't have to be that way mm. and it, if if segregation never existed or if we lived in a country where segregation was a little bit more fluid that there were segregated areas but it was fairly common to see people you know if you, a group of people in villa shirts at West Brom or whatever then that, that same fear that cultural fear wouldn't exist and I, I just I think it's, what happened in, in London with Cologne is, speaks to a much lar- larger conversation that we should have about more stuff more often, which is 
is the way things are the way that they should be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just because it is doesn't yeah, mean it yeah. should be. And just quickly, we should say, because we haven't at this point, that Cologne were playing their first European match for 25 years, hence the enthusiasm, hence the, the 20,000 fans, hence the desperation to get into the Emirates yeah. Stadium uh, by any means, foul or fair. But the motivation they said, and they said in a statement on the day after, their motivation was one of great positivity and wanting to, to have a shared experience for the first time in 25 years. There was no great desire to go in and trash a place. Which is brings us on to potential solutions to this kind of issue is better communication between clubs. If there was an apathy, just to use this example, if there was an apathy from Arsenal fans mm. to attend that game and a huge enthusiasm from, what, 10 times as many Cologne fans as there was an allocation of tickets to be there, then should the clubs not put their heads together and come up with a common sense solution, give Cologne a bigger allocation than usual? Arsenal surely must have known that, you know, I know you can't always predict in advance how, how much tickets are going to, how much interest is going to be in tickets, but to say, do you know what? We're going to set aside the required 2,700 tickets for Cologne fans, but we're also going to give ourselves a buffer zone either mm. side of that mm. section. And if there's more interest than anticipated and less from our fans, then we can start distributing those tickets to German fans as well. The other thing that I despair more of than segregation inside grounds is segregation outside of it. That seems more of a persecution thing than inside it. You know, when you see that the fans of the away team have got to take a certain route into the city centre, that certain parts of the city are off limits to them, that certain pubs uh, are home fans only, or even more absurdly, no football colours at all. It seems astonishing to me that you go to the city of a, a big football team and, and local pubs say, no football colours on a match day. Well, just just embrace it. It's part of your city's identity, your city's culture. It would be better, I think, if we said, all right, well, we're going to have, we've got segregation inside grounds. That's there. It's here to stay. There's all sorts of logistical reasons why. But can't we treat people like yeah. adults before and after the game, especially people who are travelling together? You know, if, if I go if I go to an away game with my dad and my brothers as an away fan, can I not be trusted to to treat the city with respect whilst I'm there? I can understand why I've got to sit with my own fans. In fact, I prefer to sit with my own fans inside the ground, but I'd also like to be able to choose where I ate and drank before mm. and after. If you, people, if you treat people like cows, they tend to moot. That's, that's the issue of segregation outside grounds. That if you Is that Martin Luther King? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I like that. Yeah. I'm an inspirational we'll Put it on your gravestone. Yeah. <laughs> if you treat people like, like cows, they tend to moot. Uh, what was if you treat them like sheep? They tend to bar. Do they? Yeah. 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 Uh, the things get a little bit woolly. Uh, <laughs> the, the, if you create an atmosphere for fans where there are loads of police and there is, it's a really obvious presence and they're being kettled into certain, certain situations, they're not allowed here, they're not allowed there, you are creating the, the, the cultural and social and sort of situational conditioning, in fact, for problems. A mate of mine, I also tweeted this, a mate of mine has, and I can't remember which mate it was, uh, I don't have very many friends, but they all kind of blend into one. Uh, and <laughs> they all which, like rugby league, Which, which one of us is going to have to identify ourselves very shortly? <laughs> the, that's basically it. Uh, the, who says that, that it's things like, if you served champagne and strawberries at football matches, in you know, fine little glasses and, and uh, punnets, and you served pies and ale at Wimbledon, you would notice a, behavior, a behavioural shift at both places. If you created, which is a, 
a metaphor, obviously, for saying that if you created the, the conditions at, at Wimbledon where you know the fans of Djokovic were, were kettled into one corner and then the fans of Nadal had to be separate and they were just all chanting, we hate Djokovic over the, over the net or whatever. What, <laughs> throwing pie crusts at I, each other? I come, from, I come from the part of the country where, uh, where tennis lead is very much the proper form of tennis. <laughs> <laughs> the, you, you notice a, a behavioural shift. If, if, you, if, you, if you create the conditions where people feel as though there is edge and there is violence in the air and there are problems, then you, you are kind of leading yourself into them. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the way that... And I think the way we've, that we police football matches has improved hugely. But yeah, outside grounds. I was at Celtic a couple of, week, couple of weeks ago for the PSG game. Loads of PSG fans just mingling around Glasgow, outside Celtic Park. Not, not a whiff of trouble in the air. No problems at all. And it should, it should always be like that. And people should kind of be trusted to behave like that. So I suspect most people would say, well home games of a home fans only but away fans would still want to travel would still find a way of getting into and that would cause more problems than actually having an away end yeah that's true and so because people will st- like, like we found with the Cologne game people and will get into stadiums somewhere or the other let me tell you Andrew George Hinchliffe yes that if there were no away fans the Premier League would not have the television deals that it does yes it would yes the, the product would suffer and remember always remember that if you treat people like a moo you they'll be a they'll, what was they'll it? turn they'll into cows, cows. They'll to cow tips. cows yeah. yeah yeah if there's one thing you need to remember yeah, from yeah, this podcast yeah. um, and it's probably not what's to come because this will be no doubt trifling and not at all memorable Andy do you have a soccer story yes never mind it's Jack and Ori it's time for a soccer story Andy's going to tell us a tale from his playing days that have had all adult behaviour and libel yeah, details yeah, yeah. libel worthy details uh, removed you passed it via the lawyers yes here we go Andrew it's only a short sweet one this this was a, a training session at Everton when Joe Royal and Willie Donicky took over, they did an awful lot of shape. It's like Spain's shape. No. You understand, 11 against 11, basically yeah. team pattern play and all that. Shadow, shadow, play. Play. Don't yeah, shadow, shadow, shadow play. play. Neville Southall, the goalkeeper, hated shape. doing anything. <laughs> well, he hated shape. He had a terrible shape himself. But he hated having to be involved with outfield players. He liked doing goalkeeper-y things like jumping into mud puddles and heading the ball away. Hated doing shooting practice, but really, really hated doing shadow play. So one day, I think it was in pre-season, so obviously there's a lot of new players around. We've got a new coach wanting to work on these. We're doing some attacking. And Neville's obviously been forced to be our goalkeeper, even though he didn't really want to do it. So we're attacking down one end and we do a few things and then Joe and Willie would stop it and say, no, this is what we're looking to do. So we're kind of stuck in the opposition's half for maybe two or three minutes while we work on this attacking little passage of play. <laughs> when we give the ball back to the other team and then we start going back towards our own goal, we turn and run back into our own half and Neville has climbed onto the top of the crossbar and he's actually sitting on top of the crossbar in the middle of a shadow play train. This, we are professionals people here, but Neville Southall, one of the greatest goalkeepers the world has ever seen, was so annoyed about being made, being forced to take part in this 11 against 11 session. He decided to disrupt it by climbing onto the top of the crossbar and sitting there until Joe Royal said, OK, Nev, you, you can go in. We don't really need you. <laughs> can you imagine David De Gea <laughs> climbing up onto the crossbar while Jose Mourinho was trying to put a tactical bit of work in progress? I bet Thibaut does that the whole time. <laughs> that but, sounds like quite a difficult thing to do, actually. Oh, Neville was quite... He was good at that type of thing, yes. yes. He, I, that surprises me that Neville has the suppleness and agility Oh, no, he could. He, it's surprising what he could well, do. Upper yeah, body yeah. strength, I'd imagine. Oh, he was very strong. Very strong. Yes. Very he was a strong. goalkeeper. And a bin man. Ex-bin man. Two, yeah, but two... Oh, and if you called him the bin man. 
<laughs> John Abdul used to honestly straight up onto the crossbar. That's the thing he hated more than anything else. And Is he was right? a relatively mild mannered. He was teetotal, but if you called him and John Abdul for some reason used to always call him the bin man and then run away <laughs> because Neville if he, got, if he caught like honestly he was, he was such but he was the only person that was brave enough but as he was running away he used to shout see you bin man and run off yeah that sounds really brave because if Neville got hold of you and he oh my god he would he would kill you he with, with that you. suppleness and agility oh goodness yes. me and his big hands I wonder what John Abrol's doing now that's uh, maybe a question for another day do you think he's got a podcast uh, I, I wouldn't have thought so. so I'm sure he's something to do with coaching I'll find out for you. Do you want find, me to find yeah, out find and give out, you an yeah. Ebrill update? Yeah. Yes. Next week, let's have yeah. an Ebrill update. Cannot wait. We did for have the a league Ebrill table update. at Everton, and he did very well in that league table. I won't explain no, that what is, that league table are, involves. We are diverting he from was that. consistently top four. Uh, immediately away from <laughs> such uh, tittle tattle. Andy, thank you very much indeed. Uh, do continue to get in touch with us uh, at Setpiece Menu on Twitter or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Doing hand signals, Andrew, is just as rude <laughs> as. Stop it. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. We hope you are not offended, even if you are unable to see those hand gestures. Thank you to Andy, Rory, and Steve. And to you for listening, we'll be back with another set-piece menu for you to enjoy uh, very soon. So, Rugby Union? Yes. Rugby League? Yeah. Rugby Union? Oh, of course. Rugby yeah. Union, 3-1. to one. See you later, Rory. Have, have they ever had a match? Have they done this? Played Rugby Union? Yes, Bath, Bath, and, uh, Bath and Wigan did it. Bath. Did they play both codes? Would, yes, would, they would did. Would the Rugby Union each. team not have an advantage by having two more players? <laughs> well, clearly, they, they played one oh, game of Rugby League and one game of Rugby Union. I, I can't remember. Oh, they're, they're both fine sports. Well, I think they're they're oh, 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 you just changed your tune. I'm just being mischievous, Chinch. Really? Rugby League team won the game of Rugby League, I think. Rugby League's a bit... It's too... Stoppy starty, isn't it? And it's compared a bit, to Rugby Union. Rugby Union's very tactical. Kick very it in the air. Kick it in the air. Kick it in the air. Oh, oh yeah. look, Gary kicked, Owen. I've kicked it forward now. It happened pass, in pass, 1996, pass, May yes. 1996. Wigan beat Bath in Rugby League 82-6. Oh my word! Oh, and my Bath word. beat Wigan in Rugby Union 44-19. Oh, well, that was a really constructive experiment, then, wasn't <laughs> yeah. it? Aggregate victory for for Wigan. We've settled the argument, that, essentially. Was that like a 1990s version of, May- of Mayweather McGregor, do you think? Yes. yes. I think they also got paid $100 million. Yeah. It just shows the elegant gazelles of the rugby union world can't play in the bricklaying world <laughs> of rugby league, can they? That's basically what that's saying. You're Who would have thought he was the biggest snob? What? He's an ex-footballer. You're from the M62. You should play rugby league. No, no he's, he's from, from Sale. He's from Sale originally, Sale's which is rugby union country. On the M62. The, part of the Cheshire set. M62. Where'd you get that from? Well, My family's M62. from Barnsley. But I've distanced myself from them over this the is years. All, <laughs> this is all the M62 corridor. All of it. M62 corridor? From Liverpool to Hull is the M62 corridor. Okay. Yeah, but we live yeah. beyond the boundary, surely. No. It, but it, every it corridor radiates. has doors off. It radiates. For our international listeners, the M62 is a motorway that goes from Liverpool to Hull across the north of England. It doesn't go to Hull deliberately. It's not as bad as the road to Norwich. Oh, my God. Got off the M62. I'm nearly in Norwich. Two and a half hours later, you're still nowhere near Norwich. You're not even in Norfolk. What? You know, I once drove from Lincoln to Norwich thinking that they it's were dead straight down. It took three hours. <laughs> Astonishing. Have you got to get round the wash? You've got to get round the wash. I hate the wash. I hate it.